What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this special episode from the archives. This is a golden oldie full of great evergreen advice for writers. It's a rerun, basically. Whilst we work on something very, very special. Or very, very special indeed. We were so young and naive, weren't we, Mark? Oh, we were, but our guests, our guests were brimming with wisdom. So enjoy. And we'll be back next week with a brand spanking new episode of The Bestseller Experiment. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we discover what makes a best-selling novel while trying to write, publish and market one in just a year. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. So, Mr. Stay, here we are, still rocking and rolling. Yeah, just about. Um, <laughs> actually, no, I, you know, I'm going to take that back. We are rocking and rolling. We are rocking and rolling. Because the writing is going really well at the moment. It's, um, it's interesting. It's, it's like uh, when, I was at, uh, when I studied drama, you did a lot of improv. And you learn that thing of uh, good improv isn't shutting other people down. It's that thing where you go, and then, and then, and then. So what's happening with the book is, you know, I'll write a bit, and then you'll try and outdo me, and then I'll try and outdo you, you know. And it's it's just adding to it. It's not shutting each other down. It's it's keeping it going. So, you know, there was uh, – I won't go into details, but there was a bit you worked on a couple of days ago, which was fun. And I thought, I can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> So I either ruined it or I might have improved it. But it's good. It's a really good way to work. It's yeah. keeping us on our toes, I think. I so, think yeah, we have got and officially, and it's probably a whole episode in itself, but I think we've officially found the second win with this novel. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited right now. And I just want to say, for, for the randomness of Facebook, I, something popped up on my Facebook this morning, which was almost like, and nobody knows what we're writing about, so no one could have delivered this. An exact piece of research, which I never knew existed, which actually ties together about five bits of our novel. So um, if you're out there, Joe, thank you very much. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I Honestly, I'm so freaking out. I, I was watching it thinking, he's either reading our minds and knew we needed this piece of information or this is serendipity just happening in the universe. And uh, that's the kind of thing I love. Yeah, you're into that, aren't you? Absolutely. Uh, I, I am I into that. And I'm I also into personal development and self-development and well-being and all these amazing things and that's why i'm really excited today that we've got someone very special in the studio mark so tell us about our special guest this week we've got an amazing guest this week we have the author kate harrison now kate was known to me as uh, an award-winning author and uh, you know someone who's always selling very very well for us uh with fiction books such as uh, the start of marriage brown owl's guide to life self-preservation society and then out of the blue she started publishing uh, diet books, the 5-2 diet books. And these were huge bestsellers. Certainly, you know, it, you know, just and still now sell and sell and sell and sell. And I'm very happy to welcome Kate Harrison to the podcast. Hello, Kate. 
Hello, I'm excited to be here. I am a fan of the bestseller experiment. I'm feeling your pain. I'm feeling the excitement that you are now working your way through your difficult moments. So I know you had that terrible time with Ben the other week. and Well, that was possibly the best thing that could have happened to us, actually. It gave us pause. We took stock uh, and we, we, we moved on. And since then, it's been really, really happening. Kate, let's talk about you for a bit. Um, you've started in journalism. Uh, you've worked on shows like Panorama on TV, uh, where you use secret cameras. I'd like to talk about that later on. Um, and then you moved into writing fiction uh, and you've been nominated for awards. But then, like I said, you, you started on this diet book thing. How did that come about? It came about partly because of being an author and sitting at my desk and using biscuits to reward myself, I would say. Although I've, I've struggled with my weight my whole life, I guess, ever since trying out hideous cottage cheese and pineapple on crisp bread regimes in my late teens, thinking I was uh, much bigger than I actually was. And then I gradually did become bigger than I had been then. And I hit my highest weight um, well, just over five years ago now, and I was feeling really stressed out about it. And then I watched a Horizon program about intermittent fasting and thought, oh, you know what, maybe that could work. I tried it out for a short while. And what had happened was I'd watched the program, but there weren't any books really explaining the latest science and how to do it. So I kind of made it up as I went along. And I set up a little Facebook group with a few friends doing it, about six of us. And it really started to work for me. And for the first time after years of trying every diet going, I thought maybe this could work and maybe I could stick at this. And then I thought, well, actually, I'm a writer and it's working. And there wasn't a book about this. That's a little gap in the market. Perhaps I could write a book about it. And it all went from there. Okay. So you were already published in terms of fiction. Did you approach a publisher about getting this published? Well, I talked to my agent first of all, and she thought, oh, that's quite a good idea. And then we spoke to a lovely publisher who's building uh, we're in now at Orion. And they had their doubt. They said, well, who are you really to do this? You're not a scientist. You're not a doctor. I said, well, yes, but I am somebody who's been through it. I have had that experience. And they said, well, we're not really sure about this idea. So thanks, but no thanks. And I'd already worked on the idea and worked out how I might like to do it. And I know that I'm somebody who gets really enthusiastic about ideas and new things. So I thought, well, maybe now is the time with Kindle becoming a big thing five years ago to, to see if I just write this book anyway, put it out there, no harm done. What were your expectations? I mean, like you say, five years ago, it doesn't sound like a long time ago, but that really was kind of the wild west of self-publishing back then, wasn't it? It was before some of the really big hitters came along. What did you think would, would happen? I didn't know for sure. All I knew was I'd found things out that I wanted to share. And I also wanted to write it as a proper book. I knew that obviously people have read my fiction and I was a journalist before that. I didn't want to rush something out that would be nonsense. So I approached it exactly the same way as I would a conventionally published book. As for my expectations, I guess I hoped people would buy it. I'd already done work. I, I took some time away from doing the fiction to do it. So I hoped that I would make back the money from the time that I'd given up to do it. And I also sensed that there were a lot of people around there who wanted to find out more about this. So I kind of thought maybe I could make it work. It was a bit of an experiment as well. 
you know, you've got your bestseller experiment. I'm curious about how things work. I was curious about how intermittent fasting worked. And I was curious about what we could do in terms of getting involved with the publishing process, going behind the scene, the nuts and bolts. How much of those nuts and bolts did you know going in? Or was it a big, steep learning curve for you? I guess I knew quite a lot about pitching and reaching an audience and refining what you were offering for somebody because I had worked in television and my most fun job that I did in television was working in program development, which is coming up with the ideas for the wacky and weird and wonderful shows, uh, factual shows that were going to appear on BBC One and BBC Two. That was my dream job, really. Apart from being an author, there was lots of sitting on beanbags and brainstorming. <laughs> and you guys were talking about that yes and, yes but thing. It was all about that, coming out with the wildest, wackiest ideas you could. From that, I'd also come to think in quite a lot of detail about the audience for a book and specifically who you were aiming at and how you would position that book, how you would think about uh, what the title would be, what it would look like, specifically what areas you would look at and the tone of voice, which is really relevant for fiction and nonfiction. And so I understood, I think, about the marketing side. I've always had ideas about my covers. You won't find an author who doesn't have a, a strong idea about their cover when it's given to them, but I'm not much of a designer. And as for the actual getting out there and, and selling it through Kindle, well, as you say, it was the Wild West. We didn't know that much about it. But I did have a friend down in Brighton where I live who had started writing erotic fiction off the back of... Ah, uh, the pioneers of pornography, yes. <laughs> but she had actually done some really interesting work on Amazon where she'd gone in and obviously when you type anything into Amazon, it predicts what it thinks you're going to want next. Could be quite a dangerous thing with erotic fiction. But anyway, she started typing it in. She'd write erotic fiction and then saw what came up. You know, what were people actually looking for? Because it would tell you what other people had searched for. And she worked out that people were looking for a sort of student-teacher kind oh. of thing. Not my scene. And we are talking about, you know, consenting adults here. But she had worked that out. And she designed a whole brand around that. And it sold not quite Fifty Shades level, but it sold really incredibly well. And she was a conventionally published fiction writer who started making more money from her dirty books. It's amazing. Pornography has... Do you know why we have VHS instead of Betamax? Because the porn industry went with VHS. That. <laughs> same, same with DVD over... What was the rival to DVD? Do you remember that? There was Because uh, there were two formats, weren't there? It was DVD oh, yeah, and there was another was, form. Yeah. Again, the porn the industry films. went with DVD. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, they, they show the way. <laughs> well, no, she was doing really cool stuff and she talked me through it. She told me about an ebook that I could buy, which was, I think it was called How to Make a Million from Kindle. That was, um, <laughs> and it had a lot of the kind of techniques and things that you could use. So with my agent, we just embarked on this, not knowing if we were going to make it work or not. It's cool. So your agent was completely on board with this as well. Yeah, she was. And they, had actually started doing some experimenting with publishing direct already, but this was our big attempt at doing a non-fiction book, which in some ways is easier to do, I think, self-publishing-wise, because you are offering something quite specific to people. You are saying, you know, here's how you can learn to lose weight, speak French. There are lots of books. You know, you're offering something that people are likely to Google, whereas they're unlikely to put into Amazon I'm looking for a book that makes you me cry by the end of chapter 13 and then want to kind of, you know, go off and travel the world by the end of chapter 26. 
That is quite specific. So, Kate, just just to put it into context, whenabouts was it that you you started thinking about nonfiction? What what year was that? This is now 2012. Yeah, so I'd actually lost the weight in 2012 or started to lose it. I was still losing it as I was writing the book. I mean, I guess my background being in journalism, I had written a lot of things. I'd actually written the BBC's Guide to Programme Development as well and brainstorming techniques and all that kind of thing. So I had, it wasn't quite my first attempt, but this was certainly for a mass market audience. This was my first go. And it makes, it's absolutely fascinating to me, Kate. You mentioned about how you're curious about how things work and and that you didn't come from like the academic in quotes background on the subject but i think they're the best type of 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 books when people are actually writing from experience do you do you tend to find that people have connected with with your books because it's you telling partly your story as well a hundred percent so one of the things that i decided to do when i was planning the book originally was to include my own diary of trying this out now you won't find that in a lot of diet books an awful lot of health books come from a kind of a top-down approach. So it is a doctor or a professor who is saying to you, this is what you should do. And although a lot of books don't do this, sometimes that's slightly patronizing and it comes across as you little person who can't manage to lose weight or you little person who sits on the couch all day and needs to learn to run. Well, I was very much speaking from somebody who is an intelligent person, I like to think, but couldn't managed to find a way of of losing weight. And so having discovered this, I wanted to talk about the pros and cons. So I did talk about kind of my bra being a bit too tight. This is, I'm aware here, I'm I'm talking to two chaps, but you know, like some of the less... (laughs) We've we've all been there. You've all been there with your underwear being a little bit too, uh, come back, and a bit restrictive. And and I showed this to my partner and, and I said, this is what I'm putting in. He said, oh, some of that's a bit personal. And I said, oh, don't worry, probably nobody else will read it. It didn't turn out quite like that way. That's brilliant. And then also, would you find when you're talking to other fiction writers, Kate, and you know they they know your story now about moving into nonfiction as well, do you get a lot of fiction writers who are kind of declaring to you that that's their dream as well, to be able to kind of be this almost like a, a hybrid author across both nonfiction and fiction? I get quite a lot of people who say, I wish I'd done that on the diets. Um, or I started doing that. I wish I'd thought of it. And uh, you snooze, you lose. Um, but I kind of, you know, for me, and I don't know, talking to other writers, I think a lot of us feel the same way. We write a book to understand something. So when it's fiction, you might be thinking, I really want to understand what goes into um, making a certain decision or why somebody is the way they are, why they do extraordinary things, whether that's good things or bad things. And I approach fiction and nonfiction in the same way. It's it's going through that journey of understanding and change. So if you've got a diet book, you are talking about somebody's got a problem. They are fatter or they're less healthy than they want to be. They have to go through a journey, you know, a quest, a classic hero's journey quest. And at the end of it, you're either going to have success, which might be a comedy or an uplifting book, or you're going to have tragedy. <laughs> They're worse than they were when they started out. So whether you think about that in terms of a nonfiction story or a fiction story, they are both offering the same thing. We read and we write, I think, to go through a journey vicariously. And it's just the only difference with this was that I actually did it in real life as well. Now, you've, you're already a successful fiction author. You've got a readership there. There's no guarantee that all of them are going to come with you on the nonfiction journey. Now, you've talked about starting a Facebook group. And how did you build that readership 
you, you had your diary as well. Was that all part of you building up a readership? And did you do that before publication? Or was it something that you did as you were writing the book? I actually set up the Facebook group as a tool for me before I even had the idea of writing a book. Mm. So again, five years ago, nobody had really got across the idea of Facebook groups and I just started doing it. And I realized that you could create a group that would bring people together where you'd have all the functionality of Facebook, the instant chat, the being able to see people's real names and so on. But it still could be quite private. So people wouldn't necessarily be seeing everything that was going on. And we started that, just a few of us who were doing the fasting. And then once I'd had the idea for the book, I thought, well, this can be two things. Number one, it's a great source of information. So I can talk to other people about what they do. Do they skip breakfast? What are their favorite fast day meals? And as the group grew, which it was happening organic, it was the rolling stone, and it was really gathering lots and lots of people, not sure about moss. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of that, I also had a great focus group of people who were doing the diet. And I also knew from looking at what the questions they were asking, what to address in the book. Of course, once the book was then out there, I could then say, well, if you're interested, I've written this book. It includes some of our experiences. That was really a gift from a marketing point of view because people wanted to read about people like them and they wanted to see what had been added. And I think that really helped. I don't think there is necessarily much crossover between my fiction and non-fiction books. In fact, a lot of members of my groups will suddenly go, oh, I hadn't realized you were that, Kate Harrison. I have actually got your Brown Owl's Guide to Life or this book. Yeah, Yeah, because (laughs) now if you put my name into Amazon, I don't do it very often, but occasionally if I'm looking for my actual own book and see what's happening, that's what comes up first, the 5-2 diet. It's not what I imagine would happen. But you know what? When I do get emails from people saying, this could be my story, and reading how you were feeling low and unhealthy and worried about your health and your future, it makes me think I could do what you've done. And you you started a podcast as well. That's a foolhardy endeavor, I can tell you that. Well, because I used to love broadcasting when I was working in TV, I saw this. And again, it's about kind of the nitty gritty of getting into something and thinking, well, how can I do this and make it fun? And I'll learn to edit and I'd done some editing when I worked in radio. I thought I'd do that. My problem, actually, is that I am a real butterfly. So I will land on something and love it, and then I want to move on. So I did do my podcast, and I think there are 14, might be 17 episodes, and I haven't done one for about six months. In fact, it might be a bit longer than that. But, you know, the thing is, I'm saying a lot of the same things. I think that's why. So if you listen from the podcast from the first one all the way through to some of the interviews, you'll still get a lot of them the same information. So I will probably update it again. It's always there for people to discover as well. It's Yeah, if you're work. coming to it anew. And we've had some fantastic feedback, and I really do love doing it. It's just that I'm on to the next thing. Right. <laughs> oh, that sounds all too familiar to someone this end of the uh, microphone, Mr. Stay. <laughs> I'm talking about myself. Um, Kate, I'm really fascinated as well. You said about how you, you know, you talked about finding your name on Amazon, but did you at any point think about pseudonyms? Because obviously keeping nonfiction and fiction separate is what a lot of people might do. But was it because you used your original name for your fiction that you thought, well, I can't change my name and use a pseudonym for my nonfiction work? I couldn't really see the benefit of using a pseudonym. Now, there are lots of challenges if you are trying to market fiction with having lots of different genres. And I have been a terrible 
pained my publisher with messing around with my genres and I've written YA as well under the same name. It's not easy. I like, as I say, I like trying new things and that is in a way really difficult, I think, to market. But for the non-fiction, do you know what? The, the audience aren't that different. They are kind of people who face the same struggles as I do, people who like cake and mm. like to eat out. And they're not necessarily that different from my readership for fiction, which is predominantly women of around, you know, a vast age range, but perhaps from their teens all the way up to retirement and way beyond. And so it didn't seem as though I was doing something so radically different. And as I've just revealed, actually, many of them didn't make the association anyway. Interesting, interesting stuff. I'm wondering what beyond retirement actually looks like. That sounds like the kind of place I want to head to. <laughs> I don't know. Do you actually want to retire? I can't ever imagine no, retiring. Is, I think actually. retirement's a myth. I think it's a myth. I think if you do what you love, then I think you want to not work, but play until the day you die, because, you know, that's what the, that's what the juice of life is all about. Totally. Unless you're a hod carrier true you know i don't know i'm sure there's some lots of fun to be had in hod carrying i wouldn't mind learning how to do that i've tried it it's not fun (laughs) actually my first job was was washing dried fruit oh i I wouldn't that wouldn't i would have been quite keen on retirement at 21 it almost tops my first job which was working in a paper tubes factory they actually made the paper tubes and then they cut them into little sections and they became the insides of sellotape reels Oh, the thrill. That's what made you the man you are today. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so well, I st- didn't eat Sultana brand for 10 years. That's all <laughs> I was going to say. So, so tell me, tell us about Story Kate, because one of the things I, I've often discussed, and Mark and I've had these chats offline about nonfiction and storytelling. My favorite nonfiction books always start with stories at the beginning of chapters. Do you, do you think there's actually a, quite a similarity between the art of storytelling in both types of nonfiction and fiction books? It's, I know there's been a huge amount of academic work on how we learn through story and how we've learned it right from sitting down in front of the campfire and being told not to go near that vicious animal that's out there in the woods. And I think that it's very true. It makes um, facts much more digestible, storytelling. And that's something that I did loads of, obviously, in TV as well, writing a news story. There's a reason we call it a news story. It's not um, packaged just as fact. It's packaged as a beginning, a middle and an end. We intrinsically and naturally relate to something that starts with a difficulty or a, a stage that we're at where we want to go to something new. I think with fiction as well, we're always, um, th- I'm sure you've come across it what you're writing, but you know, you've got that conscious goal versus the unconscious need. And so your character wants something, but actually what they need to change their lives and to come to the end of that story might be something different. I think we can all relate to that because none of us quite know what our life story is going to be. We're living it. And when a character is doing that and is is lost, that's that's something we really empathize with. And it's the same with nonfiction. Your conscious and unconscious needs might be quite different. You might imagine that, for example, losing weight is going to change everything in your life for the better. Actually, it might just be the start of the journey. It might be about confidence. It might be about addressing some of the issues you have around food. But it's still about coming through something and experience and being able to relate that to somebody else. As they live vicariously through it, 
they will either want to do something similar themselves or they want to do the exact opposite. And I think that that's what you're you're doing. You'll, you'll also hear in, in the industry, you hear people talk about uh, narrative nonfiction, which isn't strictly a genre, but it's something they think is more appealing to the reader. So, uh, for example, something like uh, we've just published a book called Istanbul, uh, which is about the history of Istanbul, could be quite dry. But no, it's it reads like an epic novel, you know, and, uh, the story of a city through centuries of, of history. And that gives it a page turning quality. So I think there are I'm reading uh, on the recommendation of Liz Fennick a couple of episodes ago she recommended Sol Stein's book Solutions for Writers which is a cracking book and each chapter alternates between tips for writing fiction and non-fiction and while there are clear differences it is I think when it comes down to it all engaging your reader in a in a story essentially in something that like you say they're, they're going to relate to and it could be the beginning of their own story um, so yeah I think I think there are minor differences but it, in the end it is it is all about engaging the reader even a recipe if you look at it you're offering a hook which is the title of the recipe you might be writing a couple of lines to describe to set the expectation and then you've got your list of ingredients you've got your method that's that's the challenge to overcome yeah. <laughs> and then the serving that is your happy ending hopefully no, not with me. that's that's brilliant <laughs> not, not if i'm in the kitchen it isn't but um <laughs> One one thing, Kate, that's really really interesting is you talk about the obviously writing these two different types of books, very different, you know, in terms of I mean, dieting books, obviously a very different kind of nonfiction, um, you know. And I'm really curious to see about your actual approach to writing the two different types. When you sit down to write a fiction book, for example, did you borrow some of those techniques when you sit down to write your nonfiction books? Are there any crossovers? I think that. The approach to the book has, they definitely have things in common and I'm using a lot of the experiences that I had in TV, for example. So when we used to sit down and plan a program idea, for example, we would have this acronym, everyone loves them, don't they? But it would be A-N-E-A-B-C, which would be the answer to planning and then to pitching a program idea. And I think the same can apply to nonfiction and actually to novels in slightly different ways. So do you want do you want to know the ANABC? Oh, now I've teased an, it. We love an acronym. Go for yeah. it. Okay. So AN stands for audience need, which you could then see as reader need as well. So what is it that they want to have delivered? Now in the nonfiction approach, that's quite straightforward, isn't it? They want to lose weight. They want to feel healthier. But I think it relates to the reader need as well, because if you look at what somebody wants from a crime book, they want to be on the edge of their seat. They want to enter into a slightly scary world. They perhaps want to be afraid or challenged. They want a resolution where they're going to feel either all is good, yeah. all has been solved, or sometimes they want one where it says things, life is more complicated. So that's your need. A romance book, something quite different. You're going to hopefully be ending up feeling that true love is out there and, you know, in whatever form. That's your AN. Then you've got your ABC, which is approach, benefit and competition. Right. Approach is your style, really, in the case of a fiction book. So what is it that your idea and your writing style or your view of the world is going to offer. How is that going to come out in the book? Your benefit, well, more on the emotional need with a fiction book. How is that person going to feel in detail while they're reading the book and when they put it down? Is it going to be one that's really kind of fills them with 
I don't know, evocative sensory moments, or is it going to be they can't stop reading? Yeah. They're literally flipping the pages and they're, they're wishing it was, a, it wasn't over, but they need to know. And then competition, obviously. What is there already out there? So I talked about in the case of the diet books, there are a lot of books there of people talking top down. There yes. aren't that many of people experiencing things in fiction terms. Competition is about saying, well, have there been too many books about with girl in the title? We're talking about that at the moment. How is there too much thriller out there? Well, no, because people will always love a thriller. But what is it? What can you do that hasn't got girl in the title? What can you do that hasn't got missing children in it? Which is the book, you know, the theme that seems to have been there for the last year or so. And if your book is a missing, a book about missing children, how can you then flip it a little bit so that people still think it's different enough that they haven't read it all before. And so that might sound, a lot of people will say, do you really sit down and do that at the beginning of writing a novel? And those things are playing in for me. So what I always do before I write a novel is to write the blurb on the back of the book. Right. So I'll always sit and think about the title. The title might change, the shout line, so that's the, the subtitle obviously underneath, which is enhancing the title and saying to the reader, oh, what's the, what's the story question here? And then the, the blurb on the back, I'll write it because I might not even know what the ending is myself, but I know what the tone is. I know what it is that I'm offering to somebody. Am I going to thrill them? Am I going to make them cry? Am I going to make them laugh? This is brilliant. This is the sort of thing you love, isn't it, Mr. Oh, it is actually. An, oh, it's you love funny. Acronym. I've got a little crazy business idea in the background I've been working on for two years exactly on that basis. I think writing the blurb is so important because it's almost like giving yourself a bit of a destination, Kate, isn't it? I check back quite often. So in the process of writing, because I get carried away, as I think will be quite obvious from the way that I talk and all these different ideas I have. But that is like a little touchstone. I can come back and I can say, well, is this book delivering what I thought it was going to deliver at the beginning? If it's going in a different direction, that doesn't matter, actually, because I can change the blurb far easier than I can change the story. But in terms of the emotional experience that you're offering to the reader and that ultimately you're going on yourself as a writer because you're your first reader, that's the thing I think that is as important. The writing, in a way, the thing that I've learned from being a writer as well as being a reader from the moment I could pick up a book is that it is the story every time and it is the emotional content of the story that matters far more than the sentences. There are, frankly, some books out there that are written in the ugliest sentences imaginable, but you cannot put them down. And I think that that's what comes down to movies, um, TV, factual programs. It all has to be about the transformation, the, the jeopardy. What are you doing to your character? What are you therefore by default doing to your reader, messing with their head, you have to be really clear on that. And that's what the blurb does. That that sums up what you're offering. Yeah. Oh, I love this, Kate. I love this. <laughs> this is music to my ears. The emotion bit's so huge, isn't it? Because I think sometimes we can get a bit lost in detail, a bit lost in fact, a bit lost in our research. I mean, I've had Mark tell me a couple of times, do you know, don't get and because we were told early on in the podcast, you know, just because you found some interesting facts doesn't mean you have to put them all into the story. But to me, it, it is. It's the heart, literally. I mean, the, the heart of the matter is emotion. And so maybe we need to check in with our story is making sure that it's emotionally connecting with us. Well, it, it, it makes me cry most days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But are we putting so, it in the story, so Mark? Mean... Are we putting the crying in the story? That's what I want to know. <laughs> but it's, it was really interesting listening to you talk about that because that uh, about uh, connecting with the reader and knowing who your reader is because you, you have a background in, in insight at the BBC. And, of course, we talked to Vix in our very first episode about knowing your your reader. And it's something that's changed a lot in the last few years, isn't it, particularly with publishers? I think you were way ahead of the curve there, weren't you? We used to brainstorm trends when I worked at the BBC. And you don't think of the BBC as being particularly forward thinking. You think of it as being stuffy old auntie. But actually, the development side of things was really quite far advanced. And we would talk about, obviously, brainstorming and ideas, showers and watering holes. Have you come across a watering hole? (laughs) I've heard about idea showers and brain showers. Well, a watering hole... Uh, this, I think, came from Stanford University. So it's very kind of mm-hmm. Cali- California, kind of, you know, trendy, whatever. But it was the idea that a watering hole is where it's the moment in the evening where all the big beasts of the jungle <laughs> come together with a common purpose in mind. And this is uh, to drink water, obviously, without killing each other in, in the jungle. In BBC terms, this was about bringing together the big beasts, the big commissioners, but from lots of different backgrounds to try and build an idea. So as mad as it sounds, actually, it was just about getting people from different disciplines together to market an idea and to build an idea. And so this is the kind of stuff we used to do. We'd look at a trend. We would say knitting is a trend. So knitting was a trend 15 years ago. You know, what can we do? Baking is a trend. Homemaking. You know, these are the that'll, things. That'll never, no one will ever watch baking on TV. Surely. Or knitting. Yeah, the whole, you know, or sewing. You know, that was a big one. Yeah. Domestic things. And you'll see things come from that. And when I came to have my first book published, my first novel came out in 2003, I remember talking to editors and just people in the industry and, you know, kind of shooting the breeze a bit. And the blank looks I used to get at this, oh, you couldn't possibly be thinking about who the reader is. And I'd be like, well, okay, who do you think is reading women's fiction, for example, this book that I've read? Oh, I don't know. Um, uh, women who like fiction? Well, yes, but what is it, again, emotionally are they getting out of it? And I don't believe in writing by numbers because for a TV program or for a novel to work, it still has to have a heart to it. It still has to have a drive that the program maker or that the writer wants to explore. It can't be totally cynical. But I like the way that publishing is moving a bit closer towards understanding what people are getting out of a book. And I'm not just talking about demographics. I think you can number crunch till the cows come home and it won't give you a bestseller. I'm talking about who are the readers who are reading this. And and they might... The other thing that I think a lot of um, publishers and I think that TV people sometimes don't don't appreciate is that just because I'm reading Bridget Jones one day doesn't mean that I'm not going to pick up Ian Rankin or um, a great American novel or a history of the Romanoffs the next day. People read according to their mood. So I don't think you should put them into boxes like, oh, well, my my reader is Charlotte. She's 32. She commutes every day from Peckham Rye to this, that and the other. Uh, and she likes whatever song it is, it's it, that's wrong. I think it's about what is the mood of your reader at that specific moment and what are you going to deliver to them? 
That's fascinating. That's that's not a conversation I've heard, actually. I mean, we have had – it has got a lot better. And I think I said this in the first episode with Vix where it would be what kind of woman reason – and they'd all go, well, women in their 30s. And it was like, well, not all women in their 30s are exactly the same. In fact, they're very, very diverse. And it is part of a an ongoing conversation uh, that publishing is having about knowing its readers and diversity as well. We're hoping to have someone talk about that in a couple of weeks on the show, which I, I think is going to be absolutely fascinating. But yeah, well, they are getting better at it, but it's, it is going to take some time. But that that idea of thinking about your reader's mood, that's the first time I've heard that. That's absolutely fascinating to me. If you're on holiday, for example, you've got a completely different need and it's even comes down to I've I've started listening a bit more to audiobooks recently. I love podcasts anyway, including yours, obviously. Thank you very much. Um, but I love hearing the different voices and documentaries. But stories haven't always worked for me, and certain books really work so well as an audiobook, and certain ones don't. And I think even that comes down to oh, it's another awful word that I hated at the BBC, granulation. Right. Which I, when I first heard that, I was like, what the hell does that mean? I like granulated is sugar. But, you know, really going down to what books work as an audio experience, what your narrator needs to be like, what the narrator is in your head is so interesting. And I think we're going to see more and more about what emotional response people are getting, maybe even brain science looking at what bits are firing up when they're listening to an audiobook versus reading a thriller versus a romance. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a completely different way of experiencing a story. I think so. There is this ongoing debate is if you've listened to the audio, can you have read the book? Can you say I've read that book? And I think you can, but it is a, is a different experience. And like you say, in some it's better. You know, it's, it's interesting that um, some of the best sellers in audio are our fantasy books. Uh, and they do incredibly well. Some of them are like 30 hours long. And I think what the listener is buying into there is that thing of fantasy, which is stepping into another world. And if, if you have the right reader, you are immersed in that world. And I think that's what appeals to those listeners. So yeah, it's different and it's another way and it's an exciting way of new way of experiencing a story. Like I say, it's, um, it's not just words on paper anymore. I actually think I like the faster pace books for an audiobook because I can drift off quite easily if it's not keeping me yeah. on focus. Whereas I would, I love a richer, um, more imaginative experience and slightly more complicated sentences and so on. If I'm actually sitting there yeah. reading a book, I can't actually imagine reading the same books, but that's what I'm saying is, is what I want from an audiobook is quite different from what I want for the book that I'm reading on the train or the bus, quite different from the one I'm actually picking up to go on holiday to Tenerife next week, you know, the one I want to read on the beach. One of my favourite things is going on holiday, and you know some hotels have got a book swap shelf. And the kind of serendipity of that, I absolutely love kind of swapping them and, and, and reading across as many genres as possible in a week. And then I go, well, okay, define me then. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, one of my happiest memories of childhood holidays is we were in Spain and I found an English language secondhand bookshop and I got David Seltzer's book, The Omen, which yeah, of the, of the film. Oh, I loved it. Absolutely. I still remember it now. I must have been about 11 years old. Bizarre. Sorry. But random memory popping into that the conversation. That explains a lot though, doesn't it? 11 <laughs> years old and reading The Omen, Mr. Stone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> I, I went inter, I went interrailing with Stephen King's It. 
Oh, oh goodness! That me. was that was not good on the sleeper from where was it? <laughs> Florence to Rome, kind of packed into one of those sleeper carriages with a complete bunch of randoms. I, I've got it on my phone, and I was reading it in the dentist waiting room last month. I don't know what I was thinking. I bet, <laughs> I bet you didn't go to any circuses whilst you were travelling around Europe, did you? No, no. In fact, <laughs> I've been a bit funny about those ever since. <laughs> that and Great. Sultana brand clowns and Sultana brand no way. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be the ultimate horror novel for you, wouldn't it? a clown with weed sultanas yeah (laughs) that would be bad so kate give us a quick glimpse into how you plan a non-fiction book because obviously we've been beaten over the head by mr ben a few episodes ago about outlining but obviously with non-fiction i mean outlining is is really quite essential isn't it i think that i sit down and i do think about what those questions are for the person who is going to be reading it so who is going to be picking this book up and what do they want to know and then I might get loads and loads of post-it notes and write those subjects all over um, each each different subject and sub question on a different note and then kind of have a little bit of a fiddle around there's something quite nice about doing something physical you know if you're hunched up in front of your desk all day and your laptop and it's all about the words actually writing something down in handwriting with lots of different colours and a big board and putting moving things around can can feel like playing again. Mm. And that's a lovely feeling. I've just been actually planning to do a course looking at some of these things as well, to invent a course. And I did it exactly the same way, thinking, what is my student going to want to know? So are they going to, you know, want to know, does this topic naturally come under that chapter? Does this one come under there at what stage are they ready for each bit of information as well and how do you divide it up so that it's not too stodgy and I do actually use Scrivener more for non-fiction than for fiction because I find that ability to be able to have your virtual post-it notes and move them around is very liberating I tend to edit then in Word in more detail but to get a first draft down and think even when it comes to recipes because I've written three recipe books now as part of this what sections are going to go where? You know, is this a brunch or is it more of a, a salad? You know, where does it go and, and how should I structure it? So good, Scrivener, for doing that because it doesn't tend to then freeze as Word often does if you're trying to do a bit too much manipulation of text. Word is very easily confused, I have to say that. Yeah, and Scrivener is great for organising. Absolutely brilliant. That's That's fantastic. And actually, you know, it's one of those things that we found as we started to try and break up the novel but i'm curious as well from a non-fiction point of view because that's something i love to write as well do you do you have a go-to book kate that from non-fiction you know methodologies or the craft of that you you kind of go back to and thumb through every now and again not especially there isn't as much i think devoted to that so hence I, the reason you're doing the course right? well yeah i'm doing a course <laughs> partly because i think that you know a lot of the techniques and things that i learned in the in the TV development are useful in in these areas. So I no, I don't particularly. I mean, I will read other non-fiction books for inspiration, by which I don't mean diet books, but other books that are dealing perhaps with popular science, for example, because there's quite a lot of science running through what I'm dealing with. And I might read a really good food book if I'm trying to write better recipes. So it would be much more subject or mood specific again, rather than thinking, okay, I need somebody to tell me how to structure that book, because it all comes back, as I am saying, ad nauseum to story again. Right, I think um, I'm going to skip to question of the week, 
because this is uh, this is a bit of a nitty-gritty technical question, because on your website you have a mailing list. You can sign up to a mailing list. And we had uh, Jay on, uh, he got in touch with us through Facebook, on Facebook Messenger, and he's heard us talk about mailing lists on the podcast before, but fair enough, he's asked us the nitty-gritty question, how exactly does one go about getting a mailing list and creating one? Uh, you know, so uh, with us, we used uh, MailChimp, which is uh, free to sign up to until you get to, I think, something like 2,000 subscribers. Uh, and I've been using that with my wife's mailing list with her gardening ebooks as well. There's loads of stuff to use on MailChimp to show you how to use it, much like with Scrivener. It can be quite daunting at first, but you get your head around it pretty quickly. What, what do you use for your mailing list? I use MailChimp. I I'm kind of looking for something else because I've got so many subscribers on the 5-2 list now. So I've got two different websites. I've got my 5-2 website and my own personal website. Right. With those two lists, it's way, way hit the, the limit, way over, you know, many thousand. And so now it gets to the point that, A, I'm a bit lazy when it comes to putting a newsletter together, but B, I know it's going to cost me something like 300 quid if I send a newsletter out for most people to delete it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a bit of a frustration. But the way I'm using it, it will come in useful. For example, I've got a book on veggie food coming out in a bit later in the summer, in June. And so once I've got that, then I can talk about it a bit more and I will offer lots of free stuff. I think offering the free material is interesting. But one thing that might be interesting to listeners actually working on the fiction side is what I did on the Kate Harrison site in that I decided I don't have a free book to give away because all my novels have been published conventionally. So I haven't got that control over being able to make something free. And I put together like little magazines. So I did a summer special, which included a short story, some nice recipes, some Q&As with other writers whose books I enjoyed and thought were perfect for the summer. And I also do stuff about kind of writing and motivation. And so that's a way of keeping people coming back and also signing up by giving them something free without it having to be a novel. That's a great idea. The idea of mixing it up like that, a little mini magazine, that's fantastic. And the thing I found with MailChimp, I, I did worry because with uh, my wife's one, we're giving away a free ebook as we are with the bestseller experiment as well, which is, do I have to host it? What do I have to do? And of course, MailChimp, it's all there. You just upload the file and every time someone clicks on a certain link, then they, they can download that file. You know, I sat down, I had to watch some training videos and there's always stuff on YouTube that you can look at as well. And it took me like a weekend to get my head around it, but it's fairly, fairly instinctive now. So Jay, I hope you give it a go and keep us posted on on how you get on with that and i was going to say kate you're in a similar position to us where our mailing list is outgrowing the budget and mm. uh i've i've actually as the kind of technical geek behind bestseller experiment from the back end stuff i've uh, been playing with some new software so uh We'll have a chat offline. I'll give you some tips because we, we're, yeah. we're finding some interesting experience. And and just a precursor to that, it's funny, I'm thinking of, uh, I'd love to come on your nonfiction course. I'm thinking of actually building a course for the bestseller experiment listeners about how to build a mailing list, but not just the the technology to use, but the, the bit that goes beyond that, which like you say, we're, we're learning, like keeping up with the list. We send an email out every week. And, you know, it's important to, there's a whole, it's almost like blogging <laughs> to kind of like yeah. write something every week. And so um, I think MailChimp is a good starter for 10 for people that want to get going. But there's some interesting stuff developing, but it's all on the cutting edge right now. And uh, my geekiness is kind of holding back and sharing that right now. But I will probably talk about it in a later episode, Mark. Fab. So, Kate, um, where can people find you online? You mentioned a couple of websites. The easiest one, which 
covers my fiction and non-fiction is kate-harrison.com, which has got my 5-2 stuff and it will have courses that I'm going to be hopefully developing if I don't get bored before I actually finish writing them. And your new book, which is coming on uh, June the 1st in 2017, it's 5-2 Veggie and Vegan. There's been a huge movement. There's, there's a lot. There's a big veggie movement just this year. I'm seeing lots of books coming. What's the thinking behind that? Are you going veggie yourself? I've been a veggie for more years than you can ever imagine. Brilliant. So you I walk in the walk. School, I'm an old school veggie. I remember when vegetable lasagna from Brake Brothers was all you could get from the Land's End to John O'Groats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was pretty much it. And you would go into a pub and people would go, oh, you go, what's the veggie option? They go, vegetarian lasagna? <laughs> and expect you to look all excited. And actually, you just wanted to weep. Um, but no, I love I love veggie food. I do cook for my partner. He's not uh, a veggie, but it's been lovely actually to be able to kind of share those two things yeah. and not seem weird. What you're writing to the for the converted, like because our audience obviously are mainly writers, and what we haven't really talked about much, but we're all suffering from is the health effects of writing. <laughs> I mean, we need to, we need to think about our diets as writers as much as we think about our plots. I think and the whole sedentary lifestyle being yeah. more dangerous for you than smoking. I've got a Fitbit. I was a bit of an early adopter on the Fitbit, and I've now got the one that measures your pulse. But it also does that strange buzzing thing on your wrist if you haven't moved enough in an hour. I love that, actually. That is quite good. Ten minutes, it goes 250 steps. It wants you to make 250 steps every hour to try and combat that whole sluggishness, all the blood pulling in your legs, health effect thing. So quite often at 10 to the hour, if you're in my house, you'll hear this thundering along, <laughs> right, doing this. I even, I even like step when I'm brushing my teeth. That's brilliant. Oh, I, I look, I'm looking at Mark's picture here in the video and he's like looking at, and I'm saying, Kate is speaking my language. I honestly, I have a, I have a timer. I use something called a Kanban. I don't know if you heard of the Kanban process. Oh yes. I'll talk about it later, but, um, I, I work for the 25 minutes and then I have to do five minutes on a trampette in the house. So I have to go and jump up and down. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? But you know what? I can. Yes. I, I know. Can. <laughs> but I it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant because unless I do that, by the end of the day, I am done. I mean, mentally, physically, if I haven't moved, then. So I, I'm definitely going to look into the 5-2 diet book because I'm a big veggie fan as well. And yeah, cool. I love I love this idea of you've got to do one for writers. How about that? Sedentary lifestyle people. I mean, that's a whole yeah. that's a whole area which is huge right now. Talk about a need. Is that on 5-2 for dogs? That's the other one that people keep saying I should do. <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh, there's a whole you could, you, your could, pets. you could own the diet genre. <laughs> well, so far Brilliant. you've got the five two diet book, the ultimate five two recipe book, five two your life, and five two good food kitchen, and they've sold over half a million copies so far. So I'm wow, sure this is going to be another bestseller. So that's fantastic. That Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, no. Um, well, if I live long enough to make it to next week's episode, because I'm. <laughs> I would say I that. Off my butt a lot more. <laughs> so, now, the thing is, I had, a, I had a gym membership. I used to go three days a week, and we're trying to move house at the moment. And we agreed the sale in November, and we still haven't moved. And one of the first things I did was cancel my gym membership because I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to be going soon. So I'm missing it. I'm missing the exercise. So I'm going to have to address that one way or another. <laughs> um, uh, 
But anyway, um, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, drop us a line at bestsellerexperiment.com uh, or you can find us on Facebook, uh, Bestseller Experiment, or Twitter at Bestseller XP. It's been brilliant. We've had lots of back and forth on uh, word counts because we uh, I posted, when we hit the 40,000 mark, I posted a picture up on, on Twitter saying, what's your word count? And it's brilliant hearing from people who are not only keeping up with us, but surpassing us as well. Ties it, there's a second kind of question of the week, which I'm going to ask uh, week in, week out with different authors. Uh, David Proud emailed us and said, how long is a novel? What, what, what do you generally aim for for a novel length, Kate? Around 100. Around yeah, 100. but it depends a bit on the genre. So I have written really long novels. I think the longest I've had published was about 120. Mm -hmm. And then I used to write the YA books as well, and they were about, around about 60, 70. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so Horses for Courses. Good. We'll keep that going. Stay tuned, David. We'll have different yeah. answers for you in the coming weeks as well. You should ask Kate. Do you, Kate, do you write every day? I, it's different with nonfiction. So sometimes I might be going off and researching or I'll have a whole day in the kitchen cooking the recipes that I've written up. If I'm writing fiction, I do tend to find even writing a paragraph is enough to keep the song subconscious ticking over. So yeah. Nice. Excellent. Uh, online as well, we're uh, on Pinterest uh, and we're on Instagram too. So come along and say hello. And the motivational second this week is if you're a fiction writer but you've always wanted to write nonfiction, go for it. You've all got stories in you, I think. Kate, is your, Kate, you're inspiration because you're a living proof that you can do both because people have told me you can't do both. You choose it. You go fiction, nonfiction. And I'm so inspired to hear what you've achieved, Kate. So thank you so much for all of your wisdom. And, uh, oh, I'm feeling all fired up now, Mark. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. Really, really good stuff. And the happy ending to the story is the publisher that initially turned you down now publishes all these books. So I uh, hope you made them crawl over broken glass for that one, Kate. <laughs> no, I like to think I was kind of not doing I told you so too many times. But actually, there are benefits to both. I've, I've enjoyed it. I, it's been a great experience writing cookbooks. And I wouldn't really have been able to do mm. that on my own because of the image side. So that's been fab. Brilliant. Absolutely. And we can't, we can't let Kate go because you alluded to this right at the beginning and I'm not going to let this go. Panorama. What's the equivalent to Panorama in North America, Kate? Is there kind of like an equivalent show out here? Oh my goodness. 60, 60 minutes. 60 minutes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Panorama so, was, was, it was good, heavy current affairs. Although my favorite really was working on news rounds. So I used to work on BBC news round, which, um, is news for kids. It was, was great. Was that with fun. John Craven? He'd gone by then. Uh, I'm not uh, quite that old, but no, um, I'm not but saying his, that. His he's, his he's legacy lived on. Have you got any funny secret camera stories, hidden cameras that, that you worked on with with uh, Panorama? To be honest, a lot of the secret camera stuff was more in the consumer unit days, and that would be really glamorous things like getting on a bus uh, with a secret camera. <laughs> but we did have a great one. I, I produced a program called The UK's Worst Journey, uh, which was incredibly subjective and a bit silly, but quite fun. And we did find one lady who actually, she won the worst journey. She was in her eighties, fantastic lady. She lived in battle in Sussex and she wanted to go on holiday to Eastbourne, uh, which is really close. It's probably about a 25 minute drive, yeah, perhaps yeah, a bit yeah. less than that. So she booked to go on one of these coach holidays and they picked her up and then they took her all the way around the M25 no. because that was <sighs> the stops. So it ended up being an eight-hour journey there, and they <laughs> took her that way back as well. <laughs> so we actually did, a... we actually did that journey with a secret camera. Oh it was wow! Extremely tedious. Oh, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that was probably by the time she got there, she probably had to get on the bus to go back because the holiday was done, wasn't it? Not far off. Oh, 
poor old thing. That's that's amazing though. I mean, nowadays cameras with GoPros and 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 mobile phones, cell phones. I mean, it's almost like you don't need them anymore, really, because everyone's on on camera at the stop of a button. Well, you know, our microwaves are filming us now, according to uh, Kellyanne Conway. You know, so uh, who knows what's watching us? And our Staring. webcams. I, I heard our webcams are filming us as well. So God knows who's who's been recording this interview. I've got three of them staring at me now. It's back. <laughs> That'd be useful. But Kate, <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've loved it. It's been great. I love I love hearing what you guys do. And I'm I'm sorry if I waffled sometimes, but I do tend to get a bit excited by ideas and writing. No, it's all gold. It's all fantastic. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. And don't forget, everyone, that you can come to the website, bestsellerexperiment.com, to download your free Vault of Gold nonfiction book. Correct, Mark? That's a, yeah, it is. Full of yeah, stories. Nonfiction. It's up to about 200, nearly 250 pages on PDF. I mean, we're yeah. not talking about a little pamphlet here, are we? No, it's it's way over 60,000 words now. And uh, we'll add uh, a transcript of our conversation with Kate today in there as well. So it's all there. If you ever need to reference it, you can put it on your smartphone anywhere, take it with you anywhere you want. It's uh, for your little daily dose of inspiration. And don't forget to pop over to Kate's website as well to check out all of her incredible collection of fiction and nonfiction books, kate-harrison.com. And Kate, are you on Twitter as well? At Kate Writes Books, yep. At Kate Writes Books, brilliant. So pop over and uh, continue the conversation with us on Bestseller Experiment uh, on Facebook, Bestseller XP and Kate as well. Kate, best of luck with your new book coming out. Thank you very much. And we will have a copy to give away. It's out this summer, but we'll have a signed copy or possibly a few copies to give away. So check the website under the win navigation bar where we'll have Kate's books listed there. And if you're writing and you're sitting listening to this and you suddenly feel inspired to eat some veggies, go grab the 5-2 diet book. I think that's exactly what I'm going to do now. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes as well. And a big thank you to Dave who helps out with the show. Hi, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Excellent. So it's goodbye from Mark 1. And goodbye from Mark 2. See you next time. Goodbye. To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two Marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality and subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe